Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL. This is HFL number 141. This this is kind of uh, special. This is fun for me. This particular interview with Jack Everly, the uh, resident pops conductor of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and of course of the National Symphony Orchestra and many other uh, I mean, everybody knows Jack. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Uh, a lot of people don't know Jack. Uh, but in this case, if you listen to this interview, you're going to know Jack. Uh, you're going to know more about Jack Everly, to be to be precise. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy this. But of course, before you can enjoy this interview, you're going to have to enjoy listening to um, what I have to say about the show sponsors. Messina Covers is not just any other case company. David Messina and Erica Howard design and produce some beautiful cases that fit both form and function. And you can choose your case design, fabric, and trim color, add custom engraving, and more. And of course, you can find out more at MessinaCovers.net. Peter Pickett and his crack team of craftspeople are continually innovating and providing the trumpet community with spectacular options for stock and custom mouthpieces. He and Eric Marine can help you find just the right size to fit your needs, and you should definitely consider trying the acrylic cup and rim. And if you're in the market for a custom trumpet, then Peter and Eric can build a Blackburn trumpet just for you. Check them out at picketblackburn.com. To stay current on what's going on with Studio HFL, you can follow me on social media on Facebook and Instagram, and you can watch the live and pre-recorded interviews on the YouTube channel. And while you're there, Go ahead and subscribe. My first experience with a Hammond design mouthpiece has turned into a bit of obsession. There is something very comfortable about playing one of Carl's mouthpieces. The comfort, response, and sound are part of the HD experience. Try one of the stock mouthpieces or have Carl make you a custom one. Either way, everything is better in HD, and you can find out more at carlhammonddesign.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you are, I would love it if you would take just a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts to leave a star rating and a review. Doing so will help improve the visibility of this podcast and draw more listeners. When I first tried an Eastman B-flat trumpet, I was blown away by both the playability and the sound. And the more I found out about the company and got to know the people, I knew that this was a company I wanted to have a relationship with. There is a drive for excellence in design and production of every instrument, not just the high-end products. And the proof of this is that the one and only Doc Severinsen helped to design the Eastman Beginner trumpet model. I still play that B-flat and have a, added a spectacular cornet and flugelhorn to my arsenal. You can find out more at EastmanWinds.com. I'd love it if you'd visit the Studio HFL website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. And while you're there, you can also visit the merch page and buy a Studio HFL shirt for yourself and as a gift for someone else. Of course, you can do that at StudioHFL.com. My current situation with my C trumpet is a bit ridiculous. My Shire C, which Samantha Lane helped me trial and choose, is the most versatile C I've ever played. The same goes for the new Destino designed by Doc. This horn sizzles when I need it to sizzle and is as smooth as silk when I wear my sil uh, Never mind. Uh, anyway, the line of Shire's trumpets includes the Q series, which are production models, and the custom series. Either way you go, you'll love the sound you get, and you'll also experience exceptional customer service. Find out more at seshires.com. Here's how you can access exclusive content like the interview excerpts. 
I'd like to invite you to become a part of the Studio HFL community by going to Patreon and choosing from one of the four tiers of support. You can help to financially support the show for as little as $36 a year. That's only $3 a month. Benefits include exclusive access to interview excerpts, a behind-the-scenes report, an invitation to be in the room with a guest during an interview, product discounts, and more. You can join the community of faithful supporters by visiting patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on with the interview. What? I went to IU. <laughs> oh, this is where it gets complicated, or at least convoluted. Yeah. Um, so at Richmond Senior High School, I was playing piano for the choirs. I was in two different choirs. I was playing string bass for the orchestra and the concert band and uh, crash cymbals for the marching band that I still have. Never mind. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, so I went to IU. Uh, <laughs> this seems inexplicable to be a set designer. I knew music was oh. going to be a part of my education, but I wanted to study with a professor, uh, his name was C. Mario Cristini, and he was from La Scala, and he uh, was the set designer and the professor of set design with the IU Opera, which, of course, was quite, quite famous at that time, still is. And I just I grew up loving opera and uh, musical theater, and I looked at Camelot and My Fair Lady and West Side Story and Hello Dolly and I thought those designs are incredible. They're so beautiful and to me they say everything about the musical theater whether it be opera or musicals. So I wanted to learn how to do that and that's why I decided to go to IU uh, because I also knew that my musical studies would be in great hands uh, when I was there. So I was going to do a split degree in piano associate uh, associated uh, courses, of course, with music and then set design. Well, I got there in September to learn that C. Mario Cristini had passed away in August. <laughs> so oh my. Um, that was very disappointing to me, uh, but I still was enrolled. And so I went forward with studying piano and set design. I moved it over to the theater department for a while and the uh, School of Music was not amused by that. They said, come back over here. We can't keep track of what you're doing and we'll find a way to have all of your theater courses that you want to take within the opera department. So they did, and that was incredible for me. Um, the designers that were still there and the new designers they brought in to teach were just incredible instructors. I learned so very much. And all along I was taking piano with uh, Alberto Reyes who is uh, a saint of patience to put up with me because I also took harp lessons and created blood blisters on both hands and you know I had blood all over his keyboards and he said oh you would maybe choose correctly to make a decision on what instrument you really want to study because this is not working <laughs> so, so I, I let go of the harp and the cello and other things and you know stayed with piano and uh I had an undergraduate course in conducting and the rest is uh, a bit of history. I moved to New York City uh, when I graduated IU and went ahead and studied stage design and was working in this theater and that as a music director. And then lo and behold, um, I auditioned for John Domain, who was the music director of Houston Grand Opera. And they had just done this incredible Porgy and Bess, which was just famous all around the world. It was a brilliant production that brought that opera back into popularity. 
And this time they were doing Hello, Dolly. Uh, so the Houston Grand Opera was gonna send Hello, Dolly out with its original star, Carol Channing, original mm -hmm. scenery by Oliver Smith and costumes by Freddie and um, an enhanced orchestra because it was the Houston Grand Opera, of course. So I got the job and I went out as uh, the associate conductor, piano player, and three months into the tour, the conductor, who wasn't John, uh, decided he wanted to go back to Europe and conduct opera. And he did. And because I had been doing every eighth performance on the road, Carol liked the way I handled her rather eccentric phraseology. And I could keep the thing moving. And she didn't know I'd already done Hello, Dolly twice in summer stock. But so I really knew the score. And uh, she said, I want him. So that's how my Broadway career began. I was 26. And by the time we got to Broadway, I was conducting Hello, Dolly with Carol Channing. I was so lucky. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. I, I want to back up just a second, because as you're describing going to college, I hear, I, I see parallels between set design and arranging, arranging and conducting. I mean, you are dealing with, with uh, kind of an architecture, architecture, that's the right word, I, either way, right? I mean, you're, you're creating uh, both with your mind and with your hands in, in both instances. That's a good point. You're starting in a complete vacuum. Uh, with not a complete vacuum because with a, a, arranging a piece of music you're starting with an original something or other mm -hmm. and with a set design you're starting with a script mm -hmm. but you are trying to create a new space and or a new musical language one or the other and mm -hmm. so there is a parallel there that's a, I think a very good metaphor and I've never heard that explained like that but you are correct well you heard it here first right so yes I'll, I'll take credit for that you know it, it's amazing how many times I've heard people talk about that first opportunity they've had to do something. And you're talking about with Carol Channing, because it always seems like there's the person at the right place at the right time to give the opportunity. That's true. And, you know, if, if you're prepared, which you were and willing, which you were, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. and how easy does that make it? Right. And, and there you go. So, this was, would you say that this was kind of the, the door opening to what, what was to come, well, uh, to this day? Yeah, it really was. Uh, as I mentioned, we, we were on the road, we were traveling, touring. Uh, we started with the Houston Grand Opera and then we went outdoors to all the Starlight music, summer musical theater places and Starlight in Indianapolis was one of them. Mm -hmm. So I remember my, my dad coming over at that time and seeing the show at Starlight where I had gone as a kid to see uh, Donald O'Connor and Little Me, Joel Gray and Cabaret. It's a great experience at the Hilbert U. Brown Theater there, Butler. Um, I'll never forget that. I, I still miss that theater to this very day. Anyway, so um, there was kind of a, I don't know, it was a natural, it felt so organic being on tour and then going to Broadway after that point that, uh, starting with Houston, did open a door. Uh, later, they produced Showboat in the early 80s. Uh, and speaking of which, Donald O'Connor was Captain Andy. Oh. And because of my uh, success with Dolly, they called me and said, OK, we're going to do the same thing with Showboat. We're going to re reconstruct the original score and restore it to what it originally was. And this is going to be as important part, probably, as Porgy and Bess was to them. And they did, and we toured the country and played Broadway, and it was a great experience. Um, 
my, my mom had always been a big fan of Donald O'Connor. And whenever Singing in the Rain came around, we always went. And so when I first met him uh, prior to rehearsals, uh, I remember his wife, Gloria, looked at me and she looked a bit surprised and she whispered into his ears and he looked up at me and said, you're right, he does look like me. And um, apparently everyone thought at that age of 27 or eight, I looked like a young Donald O'Connor, which was hysterical because there he was upstate on stage doing Captain Andy and we had the best time. He was, oh, what a dear man. Very fun, very much a gentleman and what a talent. Uh, so if it hadn't been for Dolly and Carol and Houston Grand Opera, you know, that those doors wouldn't have been open to me at that time and it made a world of difference. Yeah, I'm curious, in the world of conducting, does age, I mean, you're, you say you're young at this point, mid, mid 20s, right? Yeah, tw I was 26 with Dolly, yeah. Uh, what is that like in, in the conducting world? Do people, you know, I'm thinking about uh, musicians on stage or in the pit, any, anywhere. Do they tend to respect a, an older person more readily than, and accept more readily than a younger person? Or did you ever have any of those issues with, my gosh, he's so young, you know, and, and did they try to eat you alive? <laughs> Sometimes they, they, I say that because I've seen that happen and, and I may have been the one uh, to do that to a couple of conductors too. Yeah, it, uh, it existed uh, in musical theater. There is a, a little bit less of that as long as they, they look at you and they, because they've been around the block a hundred times, musicians in pits and they know the difference. Um, so they are, as you say, they're waiting with fork and knife to eat you alive. But as long as they think, well, number one, he's a human being, uh, he's not a jerk. He really knows his music. And we understand that he's trying to coordinate this score with a star and that's of paramount importance who, you know, she may change it from night to night. She may have some very extreme back phrasing to do. And we have to go with that. And once they respect you, you're home free. So I was very lucky. Um, I had the respect and no one ate me alive. Um, I'm not saying that was always the case, but mostly that was the case. And when I went into ballet theater, that's another world entirely. And so they don't care so much about age as they care about um, your knowledge, your command of what it is you're doing. And once they see that, uh, they will definitely go with you. So that is very honoring. That is what you hope for in any experience. And uh, I was lucky I, I had that experience. No one, <laughs> no one decided to eat me for, for dinner or whatever and, and toss me out, you know? Good. Yeah, I, I think about um, conductors coming in and a presence. I mean, you can tell right away when somebody's prepared. And oh, it's, yeah. it's so easy you know, not that you're waiting to see, you know, because maybe the conductor is walking in and wondering, boy, I wonder if the trumpet section is prepared <laughs> for what's about to happen, you know, but you can tell from that first downbeat whether or not this is going to be a good rehearsal or a good, good cycle, right, good performance. Um, and, and I've had the good fortune and even a lot of the regional orchestra, orchestras here in Indiana, some really fine musical directors, music directors, and uh, it, it makes it, um, it makes it fun. You know, sometimes things happen. Um, 
but that's that's the special thing about live music too, right? <laughs> that's better than recorded. Oh, that leads me to the, the, what I was going to ask you next is, you know, when you're conducting opera, when you're conducting ballet, or when you're conducting shows like Yuletide, you're you're fixed to certain tempos, to certain cues. The difference between that and just a typical concert experience, I mean, there. Are they different? In, in your mind, are they different? Yeah, there's a subtle thing about um, how you pace a, the, a concert that has been arced. Um, it, it goes somewhere for act one, intermission, somewhere for act two, and it culminates at the end of act two, of course. How you pace that depends on a number of things. And it, again, I'll take it all back to uh, Carol Channing and what something she taught me was indeed how to pace things. And by that, she changed something one night in performance, drastically so. Uh, it was all, it was these, these dialogue lines getting into a song. And it was so different. I wasn't sure if any, everybody was up on their lines or not. And anyway, so after the show that night, I almost gave a downbeat in the wrong place just because what she changed it so much. But I went to her afterwards and said, just for future knowledge, should I know why you did that? And she said, oh, of course, I won't bother to do the Carol Channing impersonation. But she said, I didn't sense the audience was with us. And they had just had a big dinner or something. But, but by and large, they were not focusing on what we needed them to focus on. So I changed things. Uh, I pointed up. I kind of made something a, a bit of a joke, a punchline that wasn't necessarily one, just to wake them up. And uh, therefore I said, so you were listening to the audience? And she said, well, that's it. Yes, exactly. I always listen to the audience. And I never forgot that advice. Uh, so when I do any given concert, I'm, I'm of course listening to the musicians and pacing things musically because of what the musicians are coming up with every single night, uh, which is subtly different than the night before. And that's wonderful. But I'm also listening to the audience and how they respond in between the numbers. And for example, if I'd planned on saying something, um, I don't keep it the same every night because I feel sometimes the audience is just shut up, please, and get to the next piece of music. Uh, <laughs> we'd be fine if you did that. And I get that, I hear it, I sense it, and I move right on. And sometimes when we finish one piece and I look to the musicians before you know, I turn around and take their bow, um, mm -hmm. I always just go, I do something like this that just says, uh, let's move on quickly. So I turn and then truncate everything I was going to say. So they're not still turning pages and waiting for me to talk for four minutes, you know? Right. Um, pacing is incredibly important in things like Yuletide celebration and a Pops concert, which is meant to constantly, very subtly pull the carpet out from under the audience's feet so they don't get too compliant, complacent, or comfortable. And that keeps them on a level of excitement and engagement, we hope. So that's part and parcel of all of it. That makes me think of uh, Byron Stripling. And I don't know if you conducted, uh, he, he and Carmen, you know, they do the Louis Armstrong. Uh, Bradshaw. Fitzgerald. Carmen Bradshaw, thank you. And yeah. I got to play the last time Byron was, was here in Indianapolis. I got yes. to play that. And, and I had the good fortune then to interview Byron uh, this past summer. And first of all, he's an amazing musician. Yes. 
and one of the nicest guys you'll ever talk to. He truly is. And, and brilliant. But one of the things that I complimented him on, and I said, you know, it, it, it's hard to sit there and play sometimes because what I was admiring was from the moment he stepped on stage to the moment he left the stage, he had that audience right in the palm of his hand. Yep. His ability to communicate was, it's the entertainment factor, but it, it's, if you think about entertainment, it's communication. And it's just very few people have that. And I just, I, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it because to me, that's such an important part of, I mean, doing what we do, right? We're supposed to communicate. We're supposed to make these connections. But, Absolutely. Uh, so you, you conducted that, uh, that program, is that right? Yep. Were you there? <laughs> I, I was, I was. And, and again, that was just, uh, you know, and to watch it uh, show after show after show. Um, and of course things are scripted but it seemed fresh. The delivery is so good. It seems like he's just speaking off the cuff. Like it's yes. just, oh, you know, like he could look into the audience and call somebody by name and have a conversation with them. And I just, I think that's a very special, very special. Attribute. A very special talent. He is brilliant. He really is. Uh, I admire him to know him. Uh, Thomas Wilkins is another incredible conductor incredible musician and oh my heavens i i envy him with the way he's able to turn to an audience and then engage them uh with all sense of humility as well as humor um marvin hamish could do that uh and it's it's so wonderful because you are in the world of entertainment and the audience is it just becomes happier by the minute to be there in your presence and to hear all this great music by the uh, orchestras. So it's, it's quite something. It's a required art, if you will, or at least craft. Well, I would like to talk about how you came to the ISO, what that first experience was like, and then, and then how this relationship developed. What, uh, what was the, the concert cycle or POPs program, what, what was the experience? Uh, first of all, uh, um, the orchestra had been trying to get me there to do a, a couple of different New Year's Eve concerts and the scheduling never worked out because at the last minute ballet theater would schedule some sort of uh, uh, gala and they, I would be required to stay with ABT. So that never worked out. And then in, 19, in the fall of 1994, um, the producer of Yuletide Celebration called me and said, I'm coming to New York City to interview a few conductors for this uh, Christmas show that we do. And you are on the list. Um, apparently, <laughs> the, the conductor of Yuletide in 92 and 93 um, had just gotten some job with the Boston Pops Orchestra, I think they're called, and he could no longer do Yuletide. So whoever they chose was about to replace Keith Lockhart, who, who would of course become even more famous conducting the Boston Pops. So anyway, uh, the interviews took place and they, we finally worked out the calendar and I got the job. So it was the Yuletide celebration of 1994 wherein I made my debut with the ISO. Uh, I guess it went well, according to them. I, I thought it kind of went well. 
because they asked me to come back. I mean, as you know, um, it's one thing to conduct or to play the first time. You have to be at a certain level of whatever and, and network so they know who you are and they want you to come in. It's quite another to be asked back. That is the ultimate compliment. Sure. <laughs> so I, I thought, okay, I did something right. They're asking me to come back. So for a second year in a row, I didn't do Nutcracker. Uh, Mr. Barishnikov was not too amused by that, but I thought, I, I love Nutcracker, I really do. I love the repetition of doing it every year, but this is a lot more fun somehow. Um, it's more theatrical, it's uh, slightly different every year. So anyway, that was the first time I conducted the ISO, it was for Yuletide celebration of 1994. Um, here we are uh, quite a few years later and I have conducted it for 25, this will be the 26th year, we'll postpone it this year and do it next year. Um, and then in 2001, I believe they named, they named me principal pops conductor. Eric decided to pull back on some of the orchestras he was conducting, Eric Kunzel, and I got the job. So that was really, that was a well, dream. Congratulations, I, I, hope, I hope it works out. I hope it lasts <laughs> for a while. So let me, let me get this clear. You spurned Mikhail Baryshnikov yeah. on Indianapolis. Is that right? <laughs> well, he didn't take it personally because he's, yeah. he's a very <laughs> smart and humane person. Uh, gosh, I just so loved working with him. He's so musical and about as dry as dust. He's got a great sense of humor. <laughs> And all he had to do was shoot you a look and he went, uh, yeah, okay, fine, I get it. And I loved that. I loved working with him. He was you know, all very demanding for all the right reasons. And uh, again, he, he adored music. He didn't, he's not one of those people who would destroy a piece of music for the sake of the choreography. Um, there are a few of those, but by and large, he represented the most wonderful thing in the world of ballet, which was integrity to the music and the dance. And he was, it was an honor to work with him, truly. We'll come back to the ISO in just a second. But what I'm hearing is Carol Channing, uh, um, uh, Donald O'Connor, Mikhail Baryshnikov. Were you ever to the point with, with a star where it was just, were you ever intimidated with who you were about to work with? Um, I think, <laughs> well, yes, but you keep that on a, the slow burn inside. You never show it. <laughs> and so you, you may be feeling that way, but of course you don't act like that. Otherwise you're just toast and there's no point to having you there. The first time I think I was, aside from Carol, because she was a very tall person who was very commanding, uh, especially in that, all those hats. But the other time I was uh, intimidated was working with Marvin Hamlish the very first few times. He, um, I had done Chorus Line, uh, uh, the one of the national companies. Um, and then he asked me to do, uh, take over the national company of their playing our song in Chicago at the Schubert. So I was available and I said, yes, this would be great. And while I was on the road with that, he needed a conductor for uh, his symphony orchestra concerts. He was doing that. And at that time he did not conduct his own concerts. The only thing on those concerts he would conduct would be the overture to a chorus line uh, because after all he won the Pulitzer Prize for writing it. So that was sensible. 
anyway, at that time he needed a conductor and uh, he asked me to do it. And so green as I was, uh, uh, I got all my scores for Marvin. I went, yay, I'm gonna do this for Marvin Hamlish. And I made all my notes and I you know, was studying uh, the, all the music. And then I packed all my clothes and my formal clothes and my, put my scores in my suitcase and we went to where we were supposed to be performing, but my suitcase did not. <laughs> it went somewhere. I don't know at the time <laughs> where it went, but I got to my hotel and realized I don't have clothing and I don't have my scores for my debut concert with Marvin Hamlish. Oh, great. Um, what happened in rehearsal since the scores had not arrived uh, that morning, the next morning was um, I asked the librarian and I really do forget which orchestra this was, to give me violin parts for all the pieces, which I had somehow committed mostly to memory. Uh, but then there was the issue of Marvin always read the score that I would have conducted from for a chorus line overture that he's conducting. Well, he looks down the podium and sees a violin part for the overture to chorus line and he stops and he turns to me and he goes, what's this? I said, uh, Mr. Hamlish, I'm sure the scores will be here tonight in time for the performance, but right now they're not. <laughs> uh huh. So he went ahead and conducted the rehearsal of A Chorus Line Overture, and sure enough, the scores arrived by that night, and whew, I survived. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he thought that was somehow very strange and yet very clever that I had said, just give me a violin part, I can conduct what I need to conduct. Um, he was a bit more uh, dry at that time of his life and career, and was uh, he he had did evolve into um, the kind of guy that just lives to amuse you, uh, and that was a wonderful to see that transition was rather wonderful because he's always been a nice guy, uh, but something in his life changed and he decided he wanted to make everyone happy, and that really was noticeable. And everyone just fell in love with him the minute that took place. And so for the rest of his career, he was quite beloved in the industry. Wow, what a, what a nice turn. Uh, better than going from that to <laughs> that to the other. Yeah, he became a real jerk. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it's funny, and uh, I may end up editing this out, but I always thought this was funny when uh, Marvin Perry, of course, you remember Chappie was principal for the ISO for 40, of course. 41 years and then third yeah. trumpet for two years. But uh, I remember when they were, and I think this is when Mario Gonzago uh, was, was that audition cycle for the music director. But uh, I was sitting next to Chappie, I think I was assisting and he goes, I hope we don't get a young one. He goes, I don't have the time left to train somebody young. I thought, you know, I, well, you think about Chappie. I mean, Chappie's got a great sense of humor. Oh, um, yes. And of course, Chappie takes forever to tell a story as well. Just that Southern pacing of his, the gentlemanly pacing. But I always thought that was really funny. And But I, at the moment, I thought he was serious. And <laughs> thinking, you know, wow, I mean, this kind of an ego uh, you've got to have as a trumpet player to think that you're the boss and then I realized oh yeah he was he was well maybe somewhat serious but uh, 
anyways, that's that's just an aside for that. Uh, okay, so back to the the ISO. Um, you've conducted, I would imagine, in Cluse Hall uh, and some other venues around town. I mean, it's not just been the Hilbert. Do you recall the orchestra? Being no, the I don't think I have. Isn't that? I mean, Connor Prairie, of course, because that's the yeah. ISO. But I don't think I ever conducted a Clues Hall, which you know meant so much to me growing up in Indiana, um, nor the Murat. Uh, so, yeah, basically the Hilbert Circle Theater and Connor Prairie, and any place else the orchestra would go, Whitewater State Park, for example, the outdoor concerts. Sure. So, you know, now it's interesting to think you're coming back year after year after year for these, these annual programs. So you're the face of the orchestra for that, but they're not always the same people in the orchestra. I mean, you've seen quite an evolution in, or quite a turnover in personnel over, over that time. But do you ever think about that? Or is it just there's an assumption that, and a good assumption that the band's going to be good? Right, it might just be some different people in different places, but uh... there's never a worry that the orchestra is not going to be good. Um, it has always been good. It has, I feel, I feel personally, it has evolved to its current state, which really just hasn't been better. Um, it's a matter of, it's a couple of things really. Um, the synergy of wonderful musicians being coming up in their training in conservatories and music schools across the country or wherever, and then auditioning for the ISO and then being accepted. The level of the people that are being trained, new musicians, if you will, is just incredibly high. And there's great competition and our reputation is rather high. And we have wonderful people always wanting to be part of the ensemble. So. It's, there is that synergy of the ensemble as it exists is incredibly good. And then we're adding to it constantly when we say goodbye to people, which is always very hard. Um, we hopefully replace them with uh, equally world-class talents. And that has been the case for a, a number of years. I'm very happy to say. Well, I, I can say that I've sat next to Conrad Jones and I would agree. I mean, holy cow, bringing in such young talent. But he is, he is amazing. Yes, he is. And, and not just in the, in the orchestral, the classical aspect, but just he's got that, uh, that Chris Bode vibe. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, the, what was the piece that he came out last year and played with Frankie. He did the, the piano, flugelhorn. Uh, oh, yeah. I'll be, uh, not I'll be home for Christmas, but the yeah. Christmas song. The Christmas song. Christmas song. Yeah, and uh, Con but, Conrad represents um, that marvelous combination of I want to do it all. I'm enthusiastic about doing it all, meaning genres, styles. If he's thrilled to do Harry Potter or Star Wars, and then he's <laughs> thrilled to play the Godfather theme um, or whatever demands are made upon him from the classical repertoire, he's just he wants to do it. He's thrilled and he's delighted to be there and. That really, that tone, that professionalism, uh, it's noticeable. And everyone just feeds off of that. And it's, it's just great, it permeates the entire room. And I, it's I a marvelous thing to have. Sitting between him, this was on a uh, Pops concert, sitting between him 
uh, Conrad on my right, I was playing second trumpet and Chappie was playing third. This was Chappie's last year. Now, I had assisted Chappie many times. And of course, when Chappie was principal, he was, yeah, he was really focused, super serious. But on third trumpet, he was like a seventh grader. <laughs> he was, he, he, I mean, it was, it was so much fun to sit there because not that he would be disruptive or anything, but you could just tell this, that weight of being principal was lifted. The, that pressure was gone. And he, I've never seen somebody have so much fun as Chappie did uh, that last year or two. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's such a great place to play. I've been fortunate to have played with the ISO and, and other regional orchestras. And I, you know, I, I think people don't give the ISO or Indiana it's what it really deserves, the recognition that it truly deserves. You know, they say, oh, Chicago's better, Cincinnati's better. It's like, well, wait a second. You know, we've got something pretty special right here. And I think if you ask any of the patrons uh, of the ISO, they would agree. I certainly would agree with that. Yes. <laughs> uh, so here we are. Um, Oh, wait a second, I want to back up one second. Now, I do remember the first time I played uh, Pop's concert with you. Uh, curtain's about to go up, and I see you standing on the podium, looking, surveying to see, you know, you're, you're making eye contact with musicians. And I remember maybe seeing me for the first time and thinking, oh, there's somebody new. I mean, d does it ever surprise you to think, oh, there's somebody new on that part tonight? Um, yeah, there... <laughs> You'd think I would always know that, but um, I have developed obviously a great level of trust with uh, Blake and Bennett, our personnel directors. And so when we are in the throes of 30 some performances of Yuletide celebration, as an example, um, there isn't the ability to have every particular musician who's going to be subbing in the orchestra during all those performances actually play rehearsals, et cetera. Uh, by now, I tend to know all the faces, but non nonetheless, I'm also cognizant of the fact that, oh, you're sight reading two hours of a show that we're about to do and have been doing for a while. Good luck. And sometimes when we do the split week and a lot of people, uh, musicians are doing classical Christmas or the Messiah or something like that, mm -hmm. um, I'll have a lot of new faces in the orchestra. And to be honest, by this, point in time I am aware that they're all so good that sight reading a lot of these challenging charts for uh, Yuletide celebration is going to be okay and we have enough people still this is where Bennett and Blake are very wise we have enough people forming the core of the orchestra that are going to carry everyone who is sight reading the show through and all will be well. So I, I don't really worry about that anymore. It's been a, a long time since I was that concerned about it. First of all, so it's two things. I know that Blake and Bennett are very, very wise about how they do it and who they hire. And we have this marvelous, really marvelous pool of freelance musicians in the Indianapolis area, don't we? I, I would agree. And you know, I, I've yet to play a rehearsal for Yuletide. It's all been uh, walking in. Now, I will say I was I was a bit surprised this past in 2019 because I I came in to sub on third trumpet and uh, Conrad is walking me through the book uh, before the show and he goes and here's where you I leave the stage and you move over and play first. I knew you were going to say that. 
<laughs> and I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, and now it's it's a I've I've played principal I think once before uh, on something there, but it it kind of occurred to me that night like, oh crap, <laughs> you know. But I mean, what are you going to do? You, you just, you have to move over. I physically moved over a chair and, you know, you, you have to play. So it's just, I, I'm almost glad that I didn't know that before I got there. Or, or I may have had a flat tire. I may have, may have had a reason not to show up that night. But, you know, now, now it may sound like I'm, I'm uh, patronizing or, or sucking up here, but I will say that uh, you make it so easy to play. I mean, to me, there's never a doubt where the cue is going to be. There's never a doubt where, uh, you know, what the tempo is going to be. And, you know, and a lot of that goes, of course, credit to you on the podium, but to people like Craig Hetrick or Steve Rhodes, whoever's on the kit for one of those programs. I mean, <laughs> yes. I think that's probably the second most important person uh, in the band at that point. Whoever's on yes, the on many of those charts, you're absolutely right. What? What Craig Hetrick and Steve Hanna do with the drum kit is is pretty amazing, and there's great trust, and we, we work things out, of course. Uh, so I have total trust in just turn and go, yep, here it is, bang, and there it is, yeah. and everyone follows beautifully, and uh, that's a big that's a load off my shoulders. The um, th thank you for that compliment. I really do appreciate that. I learned in ballet theater that you know in the world of opera the orchestra in the pit will hear the singers on stage. So they kind of know where that phrase is going, how long that note is going to be held maybe and how they're coming off of it. So in a way that's, it makes that sort of phrasing every night a little bit easier. In the world of ballet, you don't hear dancers unless they hit the floor. Mm -hmm. And so no one in the pit has any visual either of the dancers. So then they wouldn't know a preparation with the feet if their lives depended upon it, nor should they. But the conductor does, and the musicians know that they have to watch the body language of the conductor because it's gonna change every night. The same, the Romeo and Juliet you played last night will not be identical to the next night because the principal couple is different. So there's that, and I learned a lot by that. Um, uh, over the 14 years I was with ABT. So it's a matter of if your body does not imbue somehow the pulse, the tempo, the preparation of something, then you're not being as helpful as you might be to your musicians. So I do work at that. I think it's important and it's, it's something I feel is very, very helpful. So thanks. That, that does not, it's nice to know it doesn't go unnoticed. Yeah, well, you're very welcome. So, you know, I've, I've interviewed Henry Leck and Susan Kitterman and Adam Bodoni and Josh Petty, right? The ICC and uh, New World, which is now Indianapolis Youth Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And and there are others, Eric Stark, you know, these people who I think are so integral to the, the livelihood, the cultural livelihood of Indianapolis. And of course, that's why, you know, I wanted to interview you last year. This was before the radio show even came around, but I thought, oh my gosh, you are so important to uh, the, the livelihood, like I just said, uh, not to be redundant, but I am. <laughs> uh, and I think people want to hear from you. And I think they're going to enjoy getting this little insight and uh, more insight into who you are and what you've done. Um, with And of course, now knowing that you actually have a home in Indianapolis, it's not like you're somebody who just flies in and flies back out. Um, the 
in your time in Indy, um, what have you what have you seen culturally? Have, have you seen uh, a rise in I don't know appreciation for classical music, uh, a shift of any kind? Maybe a difficult question. To, yeah, that's a difficult question because <clears throat> unfortunately, what we're seeing around the world, but especially North America, is a uh, diminishing appreciation of the finer things of life. And I sadly feel classical music is one of them. Um, popular culture used to include classical music. Um, this, you know, when our country was being formed culturally and uh, populated, of course, in the late 1800s into the 1900s, um, people would be humming and whistling uh, arias by Donizetti and, and Verdi. And uh, sure, there was always the more extreme popularity of certain songs, uh, but still popular music was from classical composers as we now call them. Anyway, that has changed. Um, pop culture has fragmented over and over and over again. And every year it seems to be fragmenting even more to the point of, well, what is it? Is it something that's going to last uh, for more than a few hits from one person and then they disappear? So it's a struggle, it's a challenge. One has to have an education, I think. One has to have an open heart to appreciate what um, orchestral music is, let alone classical music. Um, it's a challenge and we have to rise to that occasion and constantly reinvent ourselves in this day and age when we didn't used to have to do that. It, um, it's always on our horizon that we have to be one step ahead of the audience. Um, and in this day and age of ever-changing pop culture, whew, that's hard. You have to strike a balance. Like? Yeah, what do you think seeing it? Oh, I'm sorry. Go uh, ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I, I stepped on you right there. Uh, but what do you think that looks like, staying one step ahead? Well, it's, it's striking that balance between what is considered nostalgic. I mean, it's so, I feel very old when people say, oh, that's really old hat. And I think, really? It's from the 60s. What are you talking about? Uh, you know, that's uh, like, really? What do you mean you haven't heard of Burt Bacharach? Come on. Um, that's a bit of a shock. But you, we still have audiences, obviously, for that, thank goodness, because it's quality music. It's wonderful composition in the popular genre. Um, every now and then, I'm actually allowed to do something like uh, a tribute to operetta. Imagine that. You can hear the rust. And I, I love it because <laughs> it's, it's, it's great music. And it's something, of course, that uh, thanks to my mom and her family uh, who lived in basically Cincinnati and were very Germanic and they loved operetta. I, I heard as a kid. So I know that, uh, you know, a good tune is a good tune. And there are lots of them in the world of operetta. But how do you translate that to today's audiences? Um, it's tricky. It's tricky. You Sometimes you don't want to uh, go against the genre, so you just have to figure out a way to make it seem contemporary, more contemporary and somehow uh, redeemingly popular because it's a good tune. And then you have the, that's where good arrangements come into play. You don't want it to sound like it was written in 1935. You really don't. 
not all the time anyway. Uh, so there's the challenge right there, how to constantly reinvent new genres sometimes, old genres, especially reinvent older genres. That's a challenge because it's just, the audience is simply not there as plentifully as they used to be there. For one thing, we're all growing older. And then how does the world of the symphony orchestra translate to millennials? These are things that we talk about all the time and how to keep it vibrant because we know how worthwhile a symphony orchestra is to a community. Well, you know, you, you see reluctance sometimes on the musicians part, some musicians, I won't say at all, because I'm one of those who welcomes the opportunity to play uh, a, a split program of pops and classical. I'm thinking, I'm just happy to have my horn out of the case and playing. Right. But then you, you know who I'm talking about. There are people who are just like, uh, I only want to play the Russian classics. <laughs> That's it. And I think there has to be a willingness to to make that shift. Right. And, 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 <laughs> Let me just interject because of what you just said and how you just said it. You would be very surprised that the people with Russian accents in the at the ISO love playing all things of pop genres, and it's really? other people who say, "I wish to play only Russian classics." It's not the Russians. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Well, you know, but I'm even thinking: Would Christoph Urbanski uh, want to do a Harry Potter uh, first half and Rite of Spring second half? You know, and, and I don't know. That might be a good pairing. Uh, as far as musical, uh, you'd have to ask Chris that. I, I couldn't speak for him. Well, you know, but I'm thinking here's, you know, maybe in his mindset, and not just Christoph, but others. You know, Daniel Barenboim. Could you imagine uh, nope. having to do right? Nope. And you know, and, and, and well, I can't imagine either. Um, <laughs> but okay, so uh, let, let's wrap up. And, and by the way, I really appreciate the time today. I, I know it's taken me uh, a year <laughs> to finally get back to you, but. Here, I, seriously, I was watching the ISO put out these, uh, these. I think it's 30 days of Yule Tide or 35 days of Yule Tide. You know, there's a, they're at least trying to stay uh, out there in the public eye. And I thought, oh my gosh, I tried to get an interview with Jack last year, and uh, I didn't realize just how exhausted you got between performances. I mean, that that, especially after 20 some or 30 some performances, right? That's I will admit it's pretty exhausting. You're, uh, <clears throat> it doesn't sound like much, but when you do two shows a day that are two hours of very, very high energy uh, and it just doesn't stop, you're doing it almost yeah. every day of the week. It's, it's, it's a lot, it's pretty demanding. So uh, I'd like to wrap up with maybe a couple of uh, really memorable experiences here with the ISO. It doesn't have to be Yuletide. It could be, it could be at Connor Prairie, but are there, certain performances or even rehearsals certain experiences, guest artists that really stand out? Um, I would have to say a high point for all of us, um, is, myself included, was just a few years ago when maestro John Williams offered to come to the ISO and conduct a, uh, a benefit concert for the orchestra, the musicians. Uh, I believe the pension is what it was. He does this in many communities and for many orchestras. And he, um, he and I knew each other from the 
July 4th and Memorial Day telecasts from Washington, D.C., where he also guest conducted during the telecasts, wherein I was conducting, but then he conducted one of his pieces or something like that. And I do remember, um, I'll try to make this very brief. Uh, there was a piece of his that I was quite enamored of that was not published. It's from a movie called Monsignor. Um, Christopher Reeve star, Genevieve Bougeot, and it uh, all takes place in Italy. Anyway, at one point, there's this marvelous scene in a cathedral, and all these plot points are coming together, but all you hear is the music of John Williams in a piece he wrote called Gloria for chorus and pipe organ. And I told him, uh, I, I, was, I loved it so much, and I had a Williams concert coming up with a chorus in Ottawa, and uh, I said, I'm very much taken with this piece. Is it published? And he said, no, it's not. But I do have my personal set of parts if you'll promise to take care of them. And it's partially orchestrated. So he loaned me his set of orchestra parts to this piece. And fast forward to this time in DC. And I said, uh, Maestro, I wanna thank you again for the personal loan of your orchestra parts to Gloria. And he looked at me with all sincerity and concern. And he said, did they like it? And I, I was nearly speechless. I couldn't believe it. Uh, uh, th th yes, Maestro, they liked it very, very much. I can't thank you enough. He went, oh, good. I'm glad. Anyway, that was the beginning of our relationship. And then he came to the ISO. And we were all on uh, another planet being there with him. I was, I prepared the orchestra and then he came in for the last rehearsal and he just, we were all so energized by his gracious presence and his sense of humor. And when the audience finally came in, uh, it was like a rock concert. They just screamed and shouted and wouldn't sit down for the maestro and uh, tickets sold out so quickly that we had to go back to him and say, I know you never do this, but would you do a second concert? And he did. He said, only if the musicians want me to. And of course, <laughs> I, I do tell you that they wanted him to. And he did a second concert that was also sold out in three hours. So that was truly a high point for all of us. And just to be near that sort of genius that is so gracious was a, a high point. Michael Sachs, principal trumpet of Cleveland Orchestra, uh, in an interview with him, of course, John wrote, uh, or I should say maestro, right? The maestro wrote, uh, composed the, his trumpet concerto and Michael premiered it. But beyond just that experience of the, the concerto, Michael went on about what a genuine, lovable human being, humble, really, that John yes. Williams is. It's very and true. I think that's a side of, uh, maybe a side of him a lot of people wouldn't think. They might think, oh, here's some, person who just puts himself up on some really tall pedestal but I think uh, brass players especially might put him up on that pedestal because what he writes for us but uh, it's just nice to hear that my goodness he's you know that he comes to you and says did they like it yeah. you know it's wow he's human he's just like the rest yeah. of us and he really meant it he wasn't just yeah. you know blowing some hot air it was real sure uh, you mentioned starlight and I think that, I remember I was at Butler working on a master's degree when Starlight was still there. Of course, they had stopped doing productions there. And so yeah. I remember I played a couple of commencement ceremonies there. And of course, it's now a parking lot or, or part of some housing. 
but uh, I would imagine there were some great experiences at Starlight. Yes. Um, as I mentioned, I grew up <clears throat> uh, attending performances at Starlight. My parents would take me to see shows there. Um, and that was really, I think, my introduction. That and Kenley Players over in Ohio, in Dayton. That was my introduction to musical theater. And there was always uh, an orchestra of, oh gosh, maybe 29 players. And it was first class. And uh, to hear Broadway music played live, where you could see the musicians, not only that, but hear them, of course. Um, it was just a great experience. And that's that wonderful freelance pool of musicians. Actually, many people at Starlight uh, during the earlier days were also members of the ISO, but uh, they always brought into play the freelancers of Indianapolis as well. And uh, oh, what a great experience that was. Well, Jack, I really appreciate your time today. This has been great. It's been worth the, the year wait <laughs> for, for us to connect. I, I so really sorry it took so long. It. I'm glad we had this opportunity. And the, the next opportunity, of course, that I hope for is that we can all be in the same space making music again. Oh, uh, yes. Much sooner uh, than, than later. I know you miss it as much as the musicians do. And, and I think maybe not as much as the patrons do. Good point. Good point. We all kind of live for it. Yeah, we're, we're looking forward to that synergy once again. Perfect. Perfect. Well, again, thank you very much. It was really nice to see you today. And I wish you good health. Thank you. Thank all you. Right. Thank you. All right. Take care, Jack. Be well. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Hey, thanks for joining me today for my interview. Hope you enjoyed it, and if you want to hear more, you can visit patreon.com slash studiohfl. By becoming a supporter, you can have access to content that is exclusively available to my Patreon patrons, which would include excerpts from interviews. I'd also like to remind you to visit Apple Podcast and leave a star rating and a review, and don't forget to follow me on social media. Thanks again for being here and listening, and I hope you come back for another interview next time around.